Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello all, I'm Vicki Vasilega, Director of the Clinical Special Scientist section here at ASHP, and I want to welcome you to today's episode. I'm particularly excited about this session as as a preview for one of our board certification offerings from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your clinical colleagues as they share the latest in clinical developments. So before I begin discussing stem cell transplant, I'll preface this with being Hematopoietic stem cell transplants are an extremely complex process um, with a lot of patient nuances. A lot of different disease states receive hematopoietic stem cell transplants. And so I'll do my best to cover general recommendations, but know that there are going to be a lot of patient-specific considerations in the real world that I'll try and highlight some of, but that you'll, you would likely be having very close discussions with patients' physician in terms of timing of appropriate vaccination. Uh, so given that, One really unique thing about stem cell transplant is that antibody titers will decrease one to four years after both autologous and allogeneic stem cell transplants. So what this means is that even if a patient was previously vaccinated, revaccination will be necessary after a transplant. The unique exception to this is varicella, because as you may or may not remember, the immunity for varicella lives in our sensory nerve ganglia, and so that is not thought to be impacted by a stem cell transplant. And so if a patient has proven immunity to varicella, they will not need to be revaccinated to varicella after their transplant. Additionally, after transplant, uh, patients are at a unique risk of disease from encapsulated bacteria, meaning that they should be immunized with pneumococcal, meningococcal, and haemophilus vaccines. And one uh, kind of extra group within this are our patients that experience chronic GVHD. Those patients are thought to be functionally asplenic. And so you should think of them as essentially being asplenic and going back to how Emily referred to asplenia patients, thinking about them in that category and thinking about their immunizations in terms of being asplenic as well, on top of being a transplant patient. And another major difference for our hematopoietic stem cell transplant patients are that live vaccines are contraindicated until 24 months after transplant, which is a very long time compared to some of the patient populations we've talked about thus far. And an exception to this are if patients have continued ongoing graft-versus-host disease or if they continue on immunosuppression after this 24-month mark, they should still not receive live vaccines. And we'll talk about that in detail as we move through these slides. So now I'll just highlight some of the specifics about the vaccines that we'll commonly be using after transplant and some of the key things to remember. So we'll start it off with discussing the pneumococcal vaccine after stem cell transplant. So after stem cell transplant, three doses of the pneumococcal 13 vaccine at either four or eight week intervals should be administered and then should be followed by a dose of PPSV23 eight weeks later. Some important things to note are that the PPSV23 vaccine should be administered no sooner than one year after transplant. So it's important to keep that in mind when you're deciding the schedule of PCV13, and you might have had those three doses in, but making sure to wait for that PPSV23 vaccine until they're at least a year out from transplant. Another important thing is to remember that patients with chronic GVHD 
should not receive the PPSV23 vaccine and should instead receive a fourth dose of PCV13. And the reason here is that transplant patients are thought to respond more favorably to the protein conjugate vaccines rather than the polysaccharide vaccines, such as PPSV23. And you can think of this as we don't administer the PPSV23 vaccine to really young patients. And so our patients are kind of falling into this category where they are likely going to have a better response to PCV13 rather than the PPSV23. And that's why our chronic GVHD patients would also just continue receiving the pneumococcal 13 vaccine. These can be initiated three to six months after transplant per the IDSA guidelines. However, I will say from my experience that transplant physicians are really thinking about vaccines earliest at that, you know, six month mark. Um, So three months, in my experience, seems on the earlier side and really six months is kind of when physicians start to evaluate whether a patient is appropriate to begin getting vaccinations. Now we'll discuss the haemophilus and meningococcal vaccines after transplant. And so uh, for the Hib vaccine, three doses of Hib should be given at four-week intervals, once again initiated three to six months after stem cell transplant, and a reminder, probably closer to that six-month mark. And for the meningococcal vaccine recommendations, after stem cell transplant, two doses of the meningococcal ACWI should be administered at eight-week intervals in our patients 11 to 18 years of age. And just another plug to remember not to administer that concurrently with our PCV13 vaccine due to decreased efficacy, as Emily mentioned. And meningococcal vaccines can also be initiated six months after transplant. The one thing I'll also highlight with the meningococcal vaccine recommendations are, once again, that group of patients with chronic graft-first-host disease. If you remember, I mentioned that we're considering them as being functionally asplenic. And so that's really remember important to remember in this case, as we would likely be immunizing them regardless of their age because of that asplenium. There are other patients that a physician may deem to be at higher risk of meningococcal disease rather than kind of your average transplant patient. And so certainly younger patients than 11 to 18 years of age may be receiving this after transplant as well. So this is sort of an at minimum, and there might be groups of patients that would be receiving the meningococcal vaccine earlier. So now some of our other inactivated vaccines to discuss, so our tetanus and diphtheria-containing vaccines, our hepatitis vaccines, and our polio vaccines after transplant. So our tetanus and diphtheria-containing vaccine recommendations are really straightforward for our patients that are less than seven years old. So three doses of DTaP at eight-week intervals should be administered to our patients that are less than seven years old. And there is some slight controversy of what to do for our patients for their tetanus and diphtheria vaccine when they're equal to seven or greater than seven years of age. Guidelines recommend considering three doses of DTaP for patients, but as you may or may not recall, technically DTaP is only FDA approved for patients less than seven years of age. And so in our normal scenarios, we think of administering Tdap to our patients that are a little older. However, our transplant patients are a unique subset of patients that have lost immunity after their transplant. And DTaP does have higher amounts, as you can tell by the capital letters, of the diphtheria and pertussis components of that vaccine. And so there's a little controversy in the literature of which is better to administer. But regardless, patients should be receiving either their DTaP or Tdap vaccines after transplant. Uh, for the hepatitis vaccine recommendations, their patients should receive two doses of hepatitis A at zero and six month intervals and three doses of hepatitis B at zero, one, and six-month intervals. These should be administered to all patients and can be, once again, initiated around six months after transplant. 
And then for the polio vaccine recommendations, three doses of the inactivated polio vaccine at four-week intervals should be administered to all patients. And once again, kind of earliest at that six-month period. So this kind of segues into the part of our discussion where we'll talk about how to think about certain medications that are administered during the transplant period and how those may impact our vaccination considerations. So we'll first discuss echolizumab, which is the medication just mentioned on the previous slide that our patient is receiving. And this is a complement inhibitor that's used in the treatment of thrombotic microangiopathy, which is a not uncommon complication of stem cell transplant. And as it is a complement inhibitor, it increases the risk of meningococcal vaccines. So in the ideal world, patients should receive meningococcal vaccinations two weeks prior to echolizumab therapy. But as you can imagine, vaccination is not usually possible in a majority of our transplant patients because TMA is a complication that arises in the first 100 days after transplant, which would be far too early to be administering any vaccination. Other common medications used in the stem cell transplant setting are high-dose corticosteroids, and these are typically used to treat graft-first-host disease after their transplant. So high-dose corticosteroids are considered to be prednisone 2 milligrams per kilo per day, or greater than or equal to 20 milligrams of prednisone, and these can all be prednisone equivalents, for greater than or equal to 14 days. So live vaccines should not be given until at least one month after the discontinuation of steroids. And this is also important to remember in the context that we need to wait at least 24 months after a transplant to administer live vaccines. So kind of thinking about those two things, is it two years after their transplant and are they at least one month off their high-dose corticosteroids? Other commonly used agents in the hematopoietic stem cell transplant setting are cyclosporin, tacrolimus, and sirolimus. And so these are immunosuppressive medications used to prevent graft-first-host disease. And live vaccines should not be administered until two months after these agents are discontinued. Once again, remembering that context of also waiting that two years after transplant for live vaccines. And these are minimum timeframes. I will say some transplant physicians prefer to wait until patients are farther away from these immunosuppressive agents to administer vaccines. But these are kind of the minimum timeframes that you can think of. And this is also not an all-inclusive list, of course, of medications that can be used during the transplant setting. Things like ATG can be used, drugs like alemtuzumab and rituximab can be used during the transplant setting. And so always thinking of what agents a patient might have received during their transplant experience and if those might have any impact on how you consider vaccinating them. So other products that are used very commonly during the hematopoietic stem cell transplant process are blood products. And so this can include intravenous immunoglobulin or blood product transfusions. And patients are nearly 100% going to at some point require either red blood cell, platelet, or IVIG transfusions during and after the transplant period to maintain appropriate levels. And these are also of note used during intensive chemotherapy cycles in patients with malignancy. And so you would want to think about these in our patient prior to him receiving his transplant, should he have received some blood products. Those would have been some considerations for a patient just undergoing kind of regular intensive chemotherapy as well. And these products may interfere with a body's response to live vaccines. And so we should be delaying the administration of live vaccines for at least eight months after receiving blood products. And this is just to allow 
enough time for degradation of potential antibodies that may have been introduced from those blood products. An interesting consideration is that although this is not a hard and dry rule, some physicians may use continued necessity of IVIG in patients as a surrogate marker for slow immune reconstitution, and that may dictate at what point they feel comfortable restarting immunizations. Like I mentioned, some of the vaccines can be given as early as three months after, but if a patient's still requiring IVIG infusions, that may lead a physician to want to wait a little longer since needing IVIG to maintain IgG levels may be an indication of slower immune reconstitution. So something interesting to think about. And so the flu vaccine is recommended for immunocompromised oncology patients annually, of course, only administering the inactivated vaccine. The efficacy of the flu vaccine is likely low during intensive phases of chemotherapy and our patients receiving antibesal antibodies. And in fact, a study out of St. Jude showed no efficacy of the influenza vaccine in patients undergoing treatment for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. So despite these recommendations, the Despite knowing that the efficacy is likely low, the recommendations still stand for oncology patients to receive their annual flu vaccine. And I would just, if I had a recommendation, would time it for in-between cycles of chemotherapy where a patient may have the best chance of developing an immune response, not necessarily if they're admitted for fever and neutropenia, administering the flu vaccine at that time, but kind of waiting until they have their best shot in-between cycles of chemotherapy to administer the flu vaccine. The influenza vaccine is also recommended for our transplant patients annually, starting six months after transplant. So can fall into that, once again, that kind of six-month mark where we start thinking about reimmunizing our stem cell transplant patients. Always remembering that for our certain age groups, they might need two of the influenza vaccines their first time around. Another important group of patients to think about are the close contacts to these severely immunocompromised patients. So of course, family members and hospital staff should all be fully immunized and receive their annual influenza vaccine. The inactivated vaccine is preferred for close contacts. However, the live attenuated influenza vaccine can be safe for these members to use unless two months have elapsed since their uh, loved one experienced a transplant or if this patient still has a um, active graft-versus-host disease, we would not want to administer the live attenuated vaccine. And close contacts of immunocompromised can safely receive live vaccines, with the exceptions of smallpox and the oral polio vaccine. The oral polio vaccine is not available in the U.S., but if we have families from different countries, which is not all that uncommon in the transplant setting, we would not want them to receive that oral polio vaccine. Both of these vaccines can shed for a long period of time, which could pose a danger to our uh, transplant patients. Thank you for joining us and listening to the great clinical content from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Are you a board-certified pharmacist looking for recertification credits? Be sure to check out ASHP's recertification offerings online at store.ashp.org. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.